Jesus said he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This means that you can't just recruit Jesus to your team. He came to call. He recruits you to his team. And who does he call? He calls sinners. He calls people like you and me to turn around, to repent. And so Christian or not, well, we might like Jesus. Because we all sin, this creates a struggle in us, doesn't it? We like Jesus, but we don't like, we don't like this struggle. If you're just checking us out this morning, it's, it's this call to repentance just admitting that we're, we're screwed up, twisted, manipulative individuals. That is hard. It's actually impossibly hard without God's help to admit we're wrong, to humble ourselves. And if you're a Christian, well, turning to Jesus and repenting is hard. This is only the beginning. This is the beginning of what is a lifelong fight against sin. And so the struggle we're facing today is in verse 4. I'll read to it from 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. It's a struggle against sin. Sin, right? Even if you don't use the word sin, the concept nonetheless exists. And you still, you still face its effects. You experience its effects. You see... Um, I've heard sin summed up as a violation of purpose. I found that helpful. Sin is a, a violation of purpose. It's going against who you were created to be by God. It's not treating yourself or others or your environment with the, the value, the respect that is intention to it by God. I can think, for example, of my own struggle with generosity. This would be where I'm valuing money over God, or I'm valuing money over other people, or I'm valuing money even over my own, well, being, sin. sin. But maybe the problem, maybe the problem isn't that you don't understand. It's not that you don't get what I mean by sin. That, that might not be the problem. Maybe it's that you're so surrounded in its effects that you've, you've, you've lost the feel for it. You become numb to it, like the cold, right? Right now, it's the fall, and as the cold sets in, we, we kind of, we notice it, we talk about it, we might post about it, but then come mid-February, if someone's still posting a, you know, it's cold outside, you're like, uh-huh. <laughs> so maybe, maybe sin is like this. We're so surrounded in it. It's such a, a deep part of our reality that we've actually become numb to it. And in our struggle against sin, maybe we haven't just become none. We've also become weary. And when I think of weary, I think of changing baby Hazel's diapers. I'm like Sisyphus, right? I change the diaper, she poops again. I change the diaper, she poops again. Or maybe weariness for you is trying to reconcile that broken relationship. You've tried, and it just seems like you're running in circles. Or maybe weariness was studying all night last night for an exam, and you just... You never made it through all that material. And the point in all these things, the, the changing the diapers, the, the broken relationships, the study, is that these things, they can feel without, like, if they're weary, like work without end. And now a struggle, right? A struggle doesn't have to be weary. But a struggle that feels like it has no purpose or end will inevitably become weary. And so in our struggle against sin, it's easy, right? We see that a, 
we see the, the discrimination and the corruption out there. But then we notice in ourselves that all, in ourselves that own, our own inclinations of, of greed and of pride. And, and in fighting at that, it, it can start to feel hopeless and, and, and wearying. And so I ask you, in your struggle against sin, are you experiencing weariness or are you growing in strength? In your struggle against sin, are you experiencing weariness or are you growing in strength? Are you wondering why God might be allowing hardships in your life? And if so, this, this text is written to encourage you. It's written to encourage its readers to endure in the struggle against sin because the struggle is real, meaningful, and hopeful. The struggle is real, meaningful, and hopeful. But first, Andrew, the struggle is real. Now, this is not, <laughs> this is not the kind of struggle I'm talking about. And if you're confused about what this might be, um, I'll just take you to the Urban Dictionary definition. This is a saying that's used in the place. It says of a first world problem. It's, it's where someone is encountering some sort of undesirable difficulty, but they're dealing with it. <laughs> Maybe you want to see another one. Uh, <laughs> now, now, these memes are jokes, right? Because the, these struggles, they're, they're not really real. And so... Maybe you've been listening to me and you've been thinking, Jordan, you keep talking about the struggle with sin. You keep talking about the struggle with sin, but that, that doesn't really feel relevant to me. Maybe it's sort of like this meme. It's not really real, right? You keep talking about struggling and overcoming sin in your life, but I can't think of any sins that I'm struggling with. But listen, if you're not struggling with sin, that's just the problem. If you're not struggling with sin, that's just the problem. This is extremely relevant to you because only those who want to overcome sin are struggling with sin. If you're not aware of your sin, if you've become numb to its power in your life, then you certainly won't be able to overcome it. C.S. Lewis has a section in Mere Christianity where he talks about this. And he says that the only person who understands the power of sin is the person who wants to overcome it. I'll quote it for you. No man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try and resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting it not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not lying down. Do you want to find, do you want to know the strength of your sin? You find, try walking against it. Try walking against it. To, to not be aware of your sin is, is to actually inadvertently give up your struggle within it. It's, with it. It's, it's to lie down. And Lewis goes on, a man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try and fight it. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try and fight it in Christ. Because he was the only one who never yielded to temptation is also the only one 
who knows the full of what temptation means, the only complete realist. Jesus, the only complete realist, the only one who knew the full power of sin's temptation. And why? Because he never gave into it. He knew the struggle was real better than any of us. The author of Hebrews, verse three, says this, consider him Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Jesus knew the struggle. So that you may not become weary and faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. Jesus knows your struggle with sin. And so that you don't need to be weary at saying here that he's done something about it. And what has he done? Is it that he has resisted temptation? Is it just that he's actually resisted temptation? See, I could be telling you don't lie down because Jesus didn't lie down. Or resist temptation because Jesus resisted temptation. Look, he's this great moral example. Be inspired by him and follow him. But that's not very helpful, is it? Because if you've ever tried to deal with your sin, you know the struggle is real. It's going to take more than a good moral example to diffuse its power. Verse 4, what's it going to take? In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding of blood. Not yet resisted to the point of shedding of blood. The point of shedding of blood is the point of death. And by virtue, if you're listening to this, you're alive yet, right? You, You haven't yet resisted to the point of death. And if we're honest, we've become numb. We lie down. We don't resist to the point of death. But he did. He struggled to the point of death. He shed his blood in your place, on your behalf. And so that means that we we don't just observe that Jesus, he never grew numb. He never lay down in his struggle against sin. We know ourselves. We We see ourselves laying down, becoming cold in the struggle against sin. And we see Jesus come to us and extending his hand and say, trust me, I'll step into your place of death. And that means that Jesus is more than just a moral example that we observe. He's a substitute on our behalf that we cling to and trust. And Jesus, in our place, takes the full wrath of God against sin. He absorbs the consequences of sin. And so now that the just consequences of sin have been removed, the power of sin has been diminished. It's like the the base has been kicked out from under it. It's been dealt a death Life is broken free from death. And Jesus was raised to life and is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And what does he do from there? He sends his Holy Spirit to empower us, to enable us to overcome the power of sin in our lives. We are now fully equipped in the struggle against the power of sin in our lives. This is good news. This is the gospel. It's powerful. You know, the other day... I was at Pharmapri, and we, we went to get some stain remover. And on the shelf, I saw that there was the normal stain remover, and there was the extra strength stain remover. And sometimes, I think we, we treat the message of Jesus as if it's only good enough for normal stains, normal sins, past sins. But when it comes to the sins that cling to us, the sins that the Puritans called besetting sins, we think we need more than the gospel. We think we need to work harder. We need counseling. We need psychology. 
And well, counseling and psychology, they're good things and they're helpful things that you may need. Ultimately, you're never beyond reach of the gospel. The gospel is the ultimate strength. It's the power of God for salvation at every point. And so the text says you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding of blood. But let's say you're nearly there. Let's say you're facing sin, death, and hell, right? But that's exactly what Jesus faced for you. He shed his blood on your behalf, and that's good news. That's ultimate strength news. That's all-encompassing news. You can face sin, death, and hell. So do you feel weary and faint-hearted in your struggle against sin? Consider him. Consider him. Consider Jesus, who faced such hostility against himself. See, while the struggle you face is real, because his struggle was also real, you've been given power to overcome. And the struggle is also meaningful. Let's go back to our text, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises the son who he receives. God is disciplining us to to help us in our struggle against sin, to help us. Discipline in our lives, then, is evidence that you are a loved son and daughter of God. Now, this this raises... uh, a real question, a very real question. How do I know that God is disciplining me? This is, a, this is a, a very real question for us because you, like me, have faced some very difficult hardships in your life. Some of you have faced uh, disease. Uh, some of us have lost loved ones. Maybe this is even the first Christmas where there's an empty seat um, at the table. And so are you saying then, Jordan, that all of these hardships, all of these bad things that I faced in my life were because God was disciplining me? In short, maybe, maybe not. That's, I can't know that. See, not every instance of suffering is a result of God's discipline. Think about Job. The text says that he was a, he was a righteous man, and yet, in a fallen world, there were other factors at play in which God allowed him to suffer. So while your suffering might or it might not be God disciplining you, what it is is it's always an opportunity for self-examination. It's always an opportunity for self-examination. But we have an, a hard time believing this. How could We have a hard time believing that discipline could be a, an opportunity for self-examination to help us fight sin. We have a, a hard time believing that God be, could be giving this out of his fatherly love, and so we resist it. You know, I, I grew up in a family that used to use spanking spoons. Um, <laughs> uh, and there was a sort of sequence to it. My, my, we would, well, first we would be bad. But then my parents would say, um, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And then they would cry. And then they would spank us. And then they would pray. And one, one of my siblings realized that during the prayer, when the eyes were closed, you could take that wooden spoon and you could actually just drop it right behind the dresser. And over time, there were less and less wooden spoons, and they were replaced with soft spatulas. That was all that's left. And then one day, the day came for cleaning the carpet, and the dresser was pulled back, and clank, 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 they all fell down. (laughs) Um, But but the the point is, 
that we resist discipline. We resist discipline because we don't believe that it's for our good. And we go through all kinds of like hoops to try and avoid it. Now, my parents, they were good parents, but they weren't perfect parents. Yet, if God is a perfect father, you can always trust him to have your well-being in mind. This is verse 9. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? I think the problem, then, is that we don't, we don't trust him. In light of this, the, the author reminds us, verse 5, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? We don't, we don't trust God's discipline because we don't believe that we are sons. Instead, we view ourselves like slaves. See, as slaves doesn't have reason to trust his master's discipline. His master's discipline is maybe just trying to, you know, produce some more, like, economic output, you know, pick more grain or whatever. Um, but a father, a father who disciplines his son, he doesn't discipline his son for what he can get out of his son. He disciplines his son because he loves his son, and it's for his son's good. <laughs> and so there's, there's two ways we can kind of think about or two sort of pictures of, in Scripture that showcase for us God's intervention. God can kind of do one of two things. He can hold back, and he can non-intervene, or he can intervene. Let's look at verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So here in, in Hebrews 12, we see what happens when God intervenes in our lives, when he inserts his hand in discipline. But, but what happens when God doesn't intervene, when God doesn't insert his hand? The Bible talks about this too. This is in Romans 1. It says that God gives people over to the lusts of their hearts, dishonorable passions, debased Mine. And so this pulling back, this giving people over to their sins and not disciplining is actually an expression of God's wrath against sin. And so discipline then is not a sign of God's wrath, but of God's affection. Discipline is a sign of God welcoming you with love because he cares about your good. Now this brings us up maybe uh, another question, which is, is God punishing me? I, I, you, you've probably asked this question before. You're going through something in your life, and you're like, is God punishing me? Life gets hard. Um, and we, we wonder, maybe the things that we have done that were wrong, they're sort of coming back to us. Um, and, and maybe this is God paying back for, for things that we've done, paying back for sins that are, for, are outstanding. Um, and so, in short, if, if you're wondering if God is punishing you, I just want to bring you to Romans 8. And in Romans 8, it says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, the Bible does not present our experiences, uh, the experience of suffering that we as Christians face as punishment in a retributive sense. What's, what's that? Retribution is an eye for an eye. So, the the, the, um, the Intention in retribution is always to punish the guilty. But the, the Bible does not speak of, of a retributive penalty 
That's um, God's wrath against sin for the Christian. Rather, Jesus has borne the full weight of retributive punishment on your behalf. And so there's no retributive punishment for you to carry. And so um, that means that if this is something that you're wondering about, if you, if you have this question, is God punishing me? There's, um, you, you can trust that as a Christian, God is never punishing you because Jesus has borne the full weight of punishment on your behalf. And, and the discipline that God carries out for the Christian is it's corrective, uh, not retributive. It's to refine your character. It's to make you more like Christ. Actually, uh, the purpose of discipline is in, unpacked in, in verse 10. And so we'll read that. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Yet it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So discipline is for our good so that what? So that we may share in God's holiness and that we would bear the fruit of righteousness. That means that suffering and hardship then is the training grounds for Christian maturity. And this is, this is fascinating. Um, St. Augustine points this out, but this is fascinating because because of Jesus' victory over death, because he's king, the very character of suffering and death has been transformed to serve a good end. Death has lost its sting. It's now the gateway to immortal life. Suffering has lost its weariness, and it can now serve to produce maturity. See, God is working in you to make you more like himself, to bring about the purpose that he has designed for you. He is making you more fully human. And notice that it produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness. See, fruit takes time to grow. It's, it's slow. But God and his purposes is cultivating you. He's working the soil of your heart to make you into a garden of righteousness. And so the struggle is meaningful. And finally, the struggle is hopeful. As a picture of hope, the end of this chapter compares two images. It contrasts them. One is of Mount Sinai and the other of Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And so let's read from verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. This is, this is Mount Sinai that it's speaking of. This is where the law of of God was revealed to Moses. Um, so you have not come to what may not be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, and to the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God. This is the great longing of what Dwight talked about in chapter 11. The people of God looking for a city whose builder and maker was God, longing for a heavenly city. And here it is. You have, but you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, 
to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, you do not refuse him who is speaking. So do you see the two pictures that are being painted here? One is of Mount Sinai where the, the law was revealed and there's fear and trembling and darkness and God is distant and unapproachable. And on the other hand, you have Mount Zion, a place where the glory of God was revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And you might be thinking, well, wasn't that in a manger in Bethlehem? Well, if you read through the Gospel of John, you'll see that the time of Jesus' glorification was actually when he was lifted up. It's painted as if it's Christ's ascension to his throne, his full glory revealed. And, And that's when Jesus, he becomes the mediator of a new covenant, a covenant of grace and not of law. And so Zion is where the glory of God is revealed. And so instead of having this picture of fear and darkness and distance, we have this picture of festal gathering, right? Of of joy and the light of God's justice and his active presence with us. And so this is the hope that we have come to. And this is the, it's now, but it's not quite yet. Um, I'll actually point out something that it says in verse 24. It says, Uh, We've come to Jesus, who is the mediator of that new covenant, the covenant of grace and not of law, and and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What is this better word than the blood of Abel? Do you remember the story of Cain and Abel? It's right at the beginning of the Bible where God begins to his interactions with man. And Cain kills Abel, right? Cain violates Abel's life, right? Sin. And uh, uh, it says that uh, Abel's brother was uh, Abel's blood was like a voice that cried out from the ground, and so you see, while while the blood of Abel cries out our guilt, the blood of Jesus cries out our innocence. While the blood of Abel cries out our guilt and the curse of sin against us. The blood of Jesus cries out our innocence. This is a better way. This is our hope. And so, verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. There's a warning here, and it's that don't reject the blood that cries out your innocence. Don't reject the blood that cries out your innocence. Rather, verse 28, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You have not received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Jesus is the rock for you to build your life on. He's the rock on which, if your life is built on, you can face any struggle. Don't build your life on the sand. Don't build your life on things that don't last. Build your life on Christ. Build your life on him, and you will be part of his kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is our hope. It's now, and it's also not yet, because we await the return of the king. And so our struggle is hopeful, but it's easy to lose sight of this big picture. Right? It's easy to lose sight of it. And, and in, in the midst of it, the struggle against sin, it's, it's so real. 
But in the midst of your struggle against sin, which is so real, remember that it is both meaningful and hopeful. That the Father loves you as a son, and his discipline is for your good. And that Jesus created you to... Um, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God and that his blood speaks a better word over you. I'll end with this. I can say all of this stuff about discipline. I can say that discipline is for your good. It's the Father's affection towards you, um, that it produces a fruit of righteousness in you. But... uh, you're still going to dread it, won't you? You still, you still dread God's discipline. Why? Why is that? Because you don't trust God ultimately. See, how do, you refo- how do you respond to the Father's discipline? Do you respond in anger, raging against God for taking what was his away? Do you respond in self-pity, telling yourself, I deserved better than that? Are you do, do you accept the Father's discipline, his correction, gratefully? Does your heart overflow in thanksgiving that he is maturing you, making you more like himself, producing a fruitful garden of righteousness in you? See, some of you don't rejoice that it's for your good. You don't sense God's affection in it because some of you are operating out of the mindset of a slave and not. A son. But you can trust God in the midst of discipline. Why? Because Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience through suffering, yet was without sin. He suffered for you. He put your needs even above his own. And that means that you can trust him. Osginus says this about trust. Christians do not need to say to God, I do not understand you at all, but I trust you anyway. That would be suicide. Rather, they say, Father, I do not understand you in this situation, but I understand why I trust you anyway. We may be in the dark about what God is doing, but we're not in the dark about God. You may be in the dark at times about what God is doing, but you're not in the dark about God. You can trust God in the midst of your discipline. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance, and his commandments, they are not heavy. And yet some of you here, you're weary and you're struggling with sin. I want you to consider Jesus. Consider him who endured such hostility against himself. And what does he say to you? He says, bring your weariness. Come come unto me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so come to Jesus for your rest. And ask his Holy Spirit to empower you in the struggle against sin. To ask his Holy Spirit to make you strong because the struggle is very, very real. And if God is your father, that means that your struggle isn't meaningless. And if Jesus is your king, that means that your struggle is hopeful. I'll pray. Lord, I thank you that the hardships that we face in this life are not meaningless. That there is hope in the midst of them.
Father, that you have made a way, that you have experienced this all before us. And so that even if we go through sin, death, or hell, you have been there before and we can trust you, we can cling to you. You are so, so good. Father, I pray that we would trust you. I pray for the person here who doesn't trust you, who's operating in the mindset of a slave, who is raging against you as you work in their life, God, that they would sense your affection for them, that they would sense that you are good, that you love them, that you're maturing them. I pray that this would be a reality in all of our hearts in Jesus' name. And I pray for the person who is weary, God. Some of you are weary in this room. And Jesus says to you, come unto me, all who are weary and heavily laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So God, I pray that you would come by your Holy Spirit and you would strengthen us to stand strong as we struggle against sin in Jesus' name.